Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, today we're going to discuss polycystic ovary syndrome. Mm -hmm. And uh, this has been a request sort of almost from the beginning of the time we started the podcast, but I'm kind of glad we waited, if only because all of the elements that go in to polycystic ovary syndrome, or PCOS, as we'll be calling it, uh, reflect on things we've already talked about. Uh, For example, women and their uh, insecurity or security over hair Mm -hmm. and body hair. Uh, Security and insecurity about menstruation, right? How difficult that is to talk about. Acne, fertility. Uh, infertility, like everything that we've ever mentioned about things that are hard to accept or to get just right in this society about being a woman, they come into play in this condition. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of glad we waited because we, when we talk then about how hard it is to like have, you know, certain, you know, conditions, it'll reflect back on the difficulties we've discussed before. I think you're exactly right. And uh, PCOS has actually been around for a while, even though it, it sounds like from the research, Molly, that you and I have done, it's really only come into the forefront of women's medicine in the past uh 10 or so years. Mm-hmm. Um, it was initially discovered or identified, if you will, around 70 years ago. Um, and it used to be called Stein-Leventhal syndrome after the two doctors who discovered it in 1935. And it affects as many as 10% of women, but it goes largely unrecognized for reasons that we'll get into later in this podcast, because rather than having one single symptom, one identifiable symptom, like an irregular period or trouble getting pregnant. It is a host of symptoms and 
researchers aren't even sure exactly why PCOS happens in the first place. They have some ideas, but they're not really sure. And it can be pretty challenging to identify. But the good thing is that uh, more doctors are starting to pay attention to it, look for these symptoms and get women the treatment that they need because uh, PCOS, as Molly, you and I have, have really discovered through our research, is not a pleasant syndrome. I would say it's downright awful. Kristen. Yeah, it sounds and pretty awful. Let's uh, go over the symptoms because I think that will demonstrate to listeners just what we're dealing with here in terms of stigma and in terms of difficulty just living your life. Mm-hmm. Um, as the name implies, something's going on with your ovaries. You have these tiny bubble cysts on your ovaries and uh, they're the result of uh, eggs that didn't quite descend to become a menstrual period and they just kind of sit there on uh, your ovaries. And as that implies, you have a regular menstruation. Mm -hmm. And um, this is classified as a metabolic disorder um, due to abnormal hormone levels. Um, And it's the hormones are FSH and LH, which are created by your pituitary gland that really control your menstrual cycle. And this imbalance can lead to a host of symptoms, including infertility, obesity, acne, excessive facial hair and body hair, diabetes, heart disease, and uterine cancer. Yeah, so these hormones that Kristen mentioned, follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH, and LH, luteinizing hormone, if everything's working correctly, they're the ones that are going to say, hey, ovaries, you need to release an egg. And if that egg's fertilized, you can have a baby. And if it's not, then there'll be a menstrual period. So when these hormones are out of whack, then uh, you don't have the period, and that will affect uh, fertility down the line. Right, and LH and FSH also regulate the ovaries' production of estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. And so all of these, it, it starts this ripple effect where all of these different hormones are out of balance and produce this wide range, can produce this wide range of really uncomfortable symptoms. Right, because the blood levels of testosterone are what can cause uh, dark, coarse facial hair, uh, baldness. There might be uh, patches of dark skin around the neck and the chest. And then complicating all of this, we've got a problem with insulin. Mm -hmm. Because insulin's primary task is to maintain your blood level glucose, and it moves the sugar, helps you digest carbohydrates. Uh, It's the best way is that it makes it into energy, but... Insulin also deals with storage of fat. So if you've got um, really high levels of insulin, then you might gain weight even if you're eating healthfully and you might have a lot of trouble losing weight. So one of the big uh, symptoms of PCOS is obesity. Half of women with PCOS at least uh, have obesity. And it's not like a gradual thing. You know, reading some of these accounts, it's like over six weeks when we put on 50 pounds, mm-hmm. it's, it's a really sudden change in your insulin production and levels that can, uh, you know, just take you on a weight roller coaster. Right. And when the pancreas starts to overproduce insulin to such extremes like this, it can also lead to type two diabetes. So as you can see, there's like this chain reaction of, uh, of, symptoms all relating back to these hormone imbalances. And we should point out that not every woman with PCOS will exhibit the same types of symptoms. We're kind of painting the the worst case scenario, but nevertheless, uh, it's 
not a fun thing to have happen. Well, I mean, if you think about just one of them, sure. just one of those symptoms is enough to cripple your life. You know, I, you know, you wouldn't want to go outside if you've got facial hair, thanks to the testosterone. Acne is already a big struggle, even without the stress of having irregular periods. You know, as I said, all these things we've talked about in the past being difficult for women and for adolescent women in particular, they're all compounded and put into this one syndrome. And I think that that is why it's really hard to get a diagnosis Mm -hmm. because who wants to go to their doctor and say, Hey, what's the deal with the facial hair? What's the deal with the fact that I'm not having regular periods? Because I think that some of these symptoms you have the tendency to dismiss, Mm -hmm. especially when you're a young girl, people tell you it'll take a while to get your periods on a regular track. They tell you that acne is due to stress and it's a normal part of growing up. So there are some of these symptoms are thought to be so, you know, part of a rite of passage, whereas the other ones are so scary and out of the norm that when you put them all together, it's very, uh, very difficult for a woman to A, come to their doctor and then B, for the doctor to figure out what's going on. Right. Because also some of these symptoms can also apply to other serious disorders like tumors or, you know, the doctor might spot the uh, the sudden spike in weight and also dark overgrown skin at the base of your neck, which is a sign of an insulin problem and say that you might have diabetes and completely bypass the PICOS issue. And Molly and I found an article from Science Daily that was really highlighting the work of um, one gynecologist who's trying to get PICOS research out into the forefront more. And she said that a lot of times women will have to go to an average of four doctors before they're correctly diagnosed. And this is happening to about 5 million women in the U.S. who are affected by PICOS. Yes. Yeah, so these women go to doctors and are told, oh, this is just a weight problem or the, this is just an acne problem. And then to add fuel to the fire, this researcher, Andrea Dunife, who's at Northwestern, says that because the the condition has ovary in the name, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of relegated to this back burner of, you know, female troubles, women's issues. You know, it's hard to confront problems with menstrual cycles straight on just because, no one's talking about it, as we discussed in the menstruation taboo episode. So she wants to get PCOS renamed. She likes the name Syndrome XX. I don't love that name, but let's, but it's a, let's but not it's split a, hairs. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's grabbier, you yeah. know, than PCOS. And, you know, PCOS is kind of a mouthful. But one of the main problems, too, with this diagnosis is that uh, physicians aren't sure whether or not it's caused by environmental or genetic factors because so there's, there's sort of uh, two different camps on this. Uh, one camp thinking that it might have to do with a defect within the ovary or if it's due to the abnormal insulin activity. And there's even um, a split between uh, American and European definitions of PCOS and the different um, symptomatic criteria they have for diagnosis this, which I was kind of fascinated by because not only is there uh, just sort of this kind of uh, knowledge-based divide, but also just a straight-up geographical divide in what actually is and is not considered PCOS. I know. And, you know, this gets back to the name, polycystic ovary syndrome. Mm-hmm. You know, not all women who have the other symptoms even have these cysts on their ovaries. Right. And that kind of leads us well into this discussion of, you know, the very definition is is skewed depending on where you are. Basically, what happened is in 1990, there was this big meeting in the United States and the National Institutes of Health 
established the criteria of what they thought PCOS was. Then, uh, you know, in 2003, these physicians in Europe got together and they were like, these, you know, that, that criteria isn't really doing it for us. We're going to issue our own criteria. And so now there's the 2003 Rotterdam criteria is how you'll hear it referred to and the 1990 NIH criteria. And because, uh, you know, one was sort of a European thing, one was a U.S. thing, you know, the, the definition that might be used will really depend on where you are. And, uh, let's go over the criteria to be, uh, 1990 NIH criteria. Uh, to be diagnosed with PCOS, then you would have, uh, hyper, uh, hyperandrogenism, uh, which refers to the levels of hormones they're going to find in your bloodstream, mm-hmm. a regular, irregular ovulation and menstruation, and exclusion of related disorders. So if they can rule out, you know, the diabetes or, right. um, just other problems with your menstrual cycle. So that's, that's one thing. But the Rotterdam people came in and said, okay, yeah, we're going to go with that irregular ovulation or no ovulation at all. We're going to go with the biochemical clinical signs of the hyperandrogenism. So the things like the facial hair, mm-hmm. the acne, uh, the darks, the dark patches of skin. And we're going to include the polycystic ovaries, but you only have to have two of those three. Right. So the Rotterdam essentially, Rotterdam criteria essentially opened up the criteria for PCOS because they thought that the NIH definition was just being a little too, a little too narrow. And so under Rotterdam criteria, a lot more women have PCOS, but they might have more minor cases of it because you don't have to meet as many of the clinical uh, criteria. But, you know, there's also this problem of polycystic ovaries is one of the, the elements of Rotterdam criteria. And if you're going to, let's say, an endocrinologist, they may not do the ultrasound that finds that. So it kind of gets thin into which doctor are you seeing? You know, Kristen mentioned you have to see four doctors and they may not all be within the same field of gynecology or, you know, if you have the acne, you might have started with a dermatologist. Um, not all of them are going to be equipped to find the polycystic ovaries right away. And if they're not causing you pain, uh, and if you just are thinking that, oh, I have a regular periods because people say that's normal, you may not have figured out that that's one of your symptoms yet. So it's, it really does come down to which doctor you see and which criteria they're using and whether they're equipped to figure out something like polycystic ovaries with an ultrasound or a, with a exam. So let's say that a woman is experiencing these types of symptoms and she is diagnosed with PCOS. Um, even though there isn't necessarily a cure, if you will, for PCOS, there are treatments that have been proven to reduce these symptoms. And uh, a lot of times a doctor, and this is coming from a really good overview article from the New York Times, um, a lot of times women will be tested for blood levels of prolactin, for LH and FSH, progesterone, testosterone, all of those different hormones, insulin, her ability to process blood gluco- glucose, excuse me, um, all of those different uh, chemicals that are regulating these different types of symptoms. And uh, while treatments are going to be varied, just like the types of symptoms that women are experiencing, so let's say that you are a woman experiencing some or all of these symptoms. You go to your doctor. Your doctor diagnoses you with PCOS. What happens next? Um, there is a pretty common treatment for it, which I was surprised uh, is birth control. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they will put you on uh, oral contraceptives in particular that contain, quote, low androgenic 
progestins like orthotricycline or orthocycline, excuse me, and ovulin. And these are going to regulate your menstrual cycle, suppress your follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone release, which were those two hormones that we, we mentioned right at the beginning of the podcast that really seem to um, regulate all of these, uh, the, that chain reaction of negative symptoms throughout your body. They're also going to lower the testosterone level, which is going to help with symptoms like your acne, excessive hair growth, and all of that. And then it's also going to raise the level of protective cholesterol and protect the uterine lining. And the uterine lining is important because that's what builds up during your menstrual cycle uh, to receive a fertilized egg. And if the egg doesn't drop down, then you shed it during menstruation. So uh, oral contraceptives have been shown to be helpful. And I should note that this information is coming from a great overview article that we found from the New York Times. Right. And so let's really quick talk about uh, for women who are trying to get pregnant. Obviously, PCOS is a really big issue. And like Kristen said, it protects that uterine lining and makes it easier for a woman to get pregnant. And um, so if a woman is trying to become pregnant, they will have the woman take the pill and then uh, try to get pregnant immediately after she stops the pill. Because, uh, if, if, if it goes on too long, then those hormone levels get back out of whack. And, uh, they also use the ovulation simulating drug Clomid, uh, when the woman's trying to get pregnant. And it's, uh, it's sometimes called the gold standard in terms of infertility because of the way it does stimulate, simulate the follicle growth and the ovulation. But, uh, I think it's important to note that even though, but I think it's important to note that even, uh, beyond the infertility problems, you can have problems with pregnancy if you've had PCOS. You might have early pregnancy loss, gestational diabetes, uh, pregnancy-induced high blood pressure, preeclampsia. So it's a huge problem for women who are trying to have children. Um, so that's sort of the side side road into fertility. But I also wanted to say that uh, because of all these problems with insulin that are related to PCOS, Sometimes they might prescribe you with insulin sensitizing medications or they might just, you know, put you on regular exercise and a low carb diet. You know, obviously, if you are at risk for diabetes, these are things that a doctor would put you on anyway. But, you know, it seems like when it was birth control plus this uh, insulin thing, it's very a symptomatic approach to mm-hmm. this. There is no sort of, as Kristen said, overall cure. You're going to be sort of treating symptom by symptom because, you know, they don't really know what's causing this. They don't know um, what exactly they're trying to go after to stop it from happening or to stop it from progressing. It's very much like, okay, now we're going to deal with the regular menstrual cycle cycles. Now we'll deal with the weight. Now we'll deal with the acne thing. But the good news is in terms of, uh, of PCOS is that in recent years, it really has started to get a lot more attention within the medical field. For instance, uh, in 2006, there was a huge medical seminar in which, uh, a couple of doctors estimated that it affects one in 15 women worldwide. And they really called attention to um, this issue, not just in terms of it affecting the health of women, especially like in westernized nations. I think that when we think about um, women's health care, we can tend to have a very Western view of that. Okay, I've got I'm having all of these symptoms. I'm going to go to my gyno and get on meds and it's going to be totally kosher. That's not really the case worldwide. Um, if you think about it happening to one in 15 women, it's a major economic health burden as well. Um, just because of the wide range of symptoms that it can have, especially in places where this kind of medical assistance is not going to be as available 
for these women. So doctors have really tried to dig into finding the root cause of PCOS. And there have been some studies that Molly and I have found that are starting to get a clearer understanding of where PCOS come from, comes from. It's linked to obesity in particular and genetics involved. Right. Let's start with one study from 2009. It found that uh, there was this gene that's implicated in obesity that might be associated with susceptibility to polycystic ovary syndrome. And uh, carriers of one gene, the FTO gene, uh, it not only influenced whether the person became obese, but also whether they developed the other symptoms related to PCOS. And one thing we should say is that it is possible, it's not as common for men to get PCOS um, because if there is this genetic component, then uh, if, you know, if your mother or sister has it, then you are at risk for also having this gene. So they're trying to find out more about that. But in 2010, there was another study that sort of looked at how fat tissue was handled in someone who uh, had PCOS and it, it acts differently. So there's something, there's some gene, they're still trying to figure out what it is that affects how your fat is stored, how it's acting within the body and uh, how it could possibly then trigger these problems with the pituitary gland and the hormones related to uh, reproduction. Researchers from the London Women's Clinic analyzed 618 women who attended the clinic for fertility treatment over two years, okay? And they found that 80% of the lesbian women who were involved in the study had polycystic ovaries compared to only 32% in heterosexual women. Lesbian women also had higher rates of PCOS with 38% having the syndrome compared to 14% of heterosexual women that suggests some kind of uh, biological hormonal underlying link to sexuality, which could then possibly be linked to genetics. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, the study was significant just because it linked for the first time so concretely that hormonal makeup, that genetic makeup with sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. So for those people who still argue that it's a choice that these, you know, that everyone can be straight if they want to, it's another uh, brick in the wall that there is a genetic reason for for uh, sexual orientation. Right, and perhaps uh, a higher incidence rate of PCOS, not the most pleasant link in the world, um, but... But uh, a link all the same. Yeah, and we felt like it was definitely worth highlighting. Now, finally, we've been talking a lot about genes, but there is also, as I mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast, the idea that there could be an environmental influence to PCOS, and specifically um, this chemical that is contained in a lot of plastics, although it is being gradually phased out, uh, this chemical bisphenol A, or BPA, if you don't want to give it the grand the grand pronouncement that Kristen did. And uh, BPA, amazingly, it just it creates this really vicious cycle in women who are susceptible to PCOS because once you have PCOS, then you are more... Uh, then uh, BPA has an easier time kind of seeping into your bloodstream and causing reproductive damage. Uh, but then again, you're already having uh, reproductive problems. Your hormones are already out of whack. So then BPA can kind of heighten that as well. And so not only are you more susceptible to it, uh, you're going to have greater problems from it. It's just cycle after cycle. Right, because BPA has been BPA has been shown to be an endocrine disruptor. So yeah, it's just like throwing um, throwing a you wildfire. On the fire? Yes, fuel, chemical fuel on the fire. That's true. 
That's my phrase today, fuel on the fire. So that is an overview of PICOS. Obviously, for the women out there who are listening to this who are dealing with PICOS, it probably seems like an incredibly oversimplified version of it because living with it day to day, from what we've read, seems like quite a task. Um, and even getting it diagnosed in the first place can be half the battle. Right. And like we said at the beginning, I think that this uh, podcast really encapsulates a lot of things we've talked about. So if you've ever heard a podcast about, you know, women's attachment to hair or why women don't want facial hair, then just sort of magnify it by, you know, a million in terms of what you'd be dealing with with this um, condition. But I would hope that what Chris and I always try and do is just open up conversations and try and lessen stigma around some of these symptoms. So if you are living with a lot of shame, depression, pain, just because you don't know how to approach a doctor about any one of these problems. Issues with infertility. I mean, there's yeah. so many, so many factors associated with this. Just try and take the the confidence to uh, just try and build it up. It's hard to try and get medical help. And when you have to see those four doctors in a row, be persistent and know that, you know, you know when something's wrong with your body and, and you need to fight for your uh, diagnosis of that. Absolutely. So in the meantime, if you would like to share your story of Pico story with Molly and me, our email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com or share it with all of our listeners on our Facebook page. In the meantime, let's read a couple of those listener emails. Actually, this one was a listener snail mail and you can find our snail mail address on the website howstuffworks.com. And this is from Helena, who also sent us brownies. They were delicious. And, and muffins. muffins. Per, but you were the one who requested brownies in a recent podcast, Kristen. And Molly and I love baked goods. She took us I up on it. Um, and But she included this email that was a response to the podcast about men and women cooking differently. And uh, she writes, You're entirely right in your observation that there is an underlying gendering of cooking This gendering, however evident in the public workplace, is equally as evident in the domestic one. Let me use myself as an example. For me, cooking is a creative process, a stress reliever, and something I've loved since I was a little kid. Growing up, I thought I would either be one of two things, a writer or a cook. But as I grew older, I realized quickly that working in the service industry would not offer me the same satisfying experiences as, as cooking at home for family and friends might. If I cooked for a profession then I would inevitably lose all passion for it, and I never want to jeopardize my enthusiasm for being in the kitchen. So she writes about how she made that decision to, you know, not not go into cooking professionally. She went to another field. But in 2009, she writes, I started a food, cooking, and recipe blog, and the address of that is clearlydeliciousfoodblog.com. And Helena goes on to write, As an academic, I find food blogging to be a wonderful source of creative writing while also indulging in one of my favorite hobbies. And uh, she writes about how food blogging is an incredible community for women, Mm -hmm. which is pretty interesting and probably its own podcast topic. And then she writes, to summarize, perhaps then the question is not, do men or women cook differently? But where do men or women cook and how is that different? And that very possibly is the answer to your two questions. Cooking at home or as a creative outlet allows many women to strengthen the divide between work and home. For me and many other food bloggers, we can have our cake and eat it too. Thank you so much, Helena. And yeah, 
again, many thanks for those brownies and muffins. All right, well, to close things out, I've got an email here from Paul, and this was in relation to our podcast about penis size. Uh, he says, uh, it reminded me of a saying a girl I once knew who said, men care about the penis attached to the guy. Women care about the guy attached to the penis. I don't know why, but I've always remembered that. He said he mentioned women and their weight several times toward the end of the podcast, so I, thro- so I thought I'd throw this in. Speaking as a guy, I can tell you that guys honestly don't care about a girl's weight in general. Guys each have their own types weight-wise, and they generally don't even bother dating women who aren't in the category. So if a guy's into a girl, he's into the girl as she is. He doesn't care about weight at all, and it's a totally non-issue. And by the way, we have gotten so many interesting responses about this penis episode from our male listeners. And um, very few of you guys believe that size doesn't matter. So, Molly, we might just have to have a follow-up and let the men speak in response to their anatomy that you and I don't share. Um, and uh, they were the exact emails that I was hoping to get because yeah. I was really hoping to uh, to provoke some some thoughts and responses and keep them coming men and women of course uh our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com find us on facebook where it's stuff mom never told you follow us on twitter i mean really just engage us in every aspect of your life that's what molly and i want uh and during the week read what we have to say with words on a page it's the stuff mom never told you blog and it's at howstuffworks.com Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more about the adoption drive and to see full terms and conditions. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.